Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Today we have for you the next episode in our series on the 10 words with Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts. Here, they'll be discussing the fourth word on the Sabbath. They'll, of course, discuss resting, but they'll also talk about whether or not it was a day of worship for Israel. They'll talk about active rest and the act of giving rest. They'll touch on Jesus' Sabbath practice and whether or not he broke the law, and how we as Christians keep the Sabbath today. We hope that you are encouraged and sharpened by this discussion. And here are Alistair Roberts and Peter Lightheart discussing the fourth word. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts who continues his visit here in Birmingham. Brian Motes is here, making sure that we stay stay on track. And uh, we continue today in our series of studies in the 10 words, the 10 commandments. As I've mentioned every time we've done an episode on this, uh, we're calling them the 10 words. When, when we think about it, when we don't just fall back into verbal habits, uh, we're calling them the 10 words because that's the terminology the Bible uses. And it's a reminder that these passages in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the words that were placed on the two tablets of stone are not only imperatives, commandments, but they also include other sorts of words. And that's the uh, fourth word that we're discussing today is a good illustration of that. The fourth word in our counting is the Sabbath law. And it is a command. It gives a, more than one command. Remember the Sabbath day to consecrate it. Work is an implied command. Uh, rest is ceasing is a command. Uh, and then granting rest to others within a household within a that are under one's authority, that's also part of the command. So there's a series of commands here, but there's also this addendum, as it were, this justification in verse 11 of Exodus 20, uh, which connects the Sabbath to the seventh day of the creation week. Uh, this is one place where Deuteronomy differs from the account in Exodus, from the presentation of the ten words in Exodus. Instead of connecting the Sabbath command to the uh, seventh day of the creation week, Deuteronomy 5 connects it to the Exodus. The Sabbath is a reminder that the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, that He brought them out of house of slavery where they were forced to work without rest, and He brought them to Sinai, and He's granting them rest. He has granted them rest by bringing them out of the uh, land of Egypt, and now He's commanding them to take rest and to give rest because uh, they've received rest from Him. Uh, just a couple things to set, set up this uh, discussion. The fourth and fifth commandment, again, in our reckoning, the Sabbath command and the command to honor father and mother, stand out among the commands uh, because they're framed positively rather than negatively. Most of the commands are do nots, thou shalt nots, thou shalt not have any other God before me, thou shalt not make for thee any graven image, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, and so on. Uh, but then toward the center of the ten words, we have these two commandments, these two words that are framed positively. There are negatives or implied negatives, but the, the command itself is framed positively. Remember or commemorate the Sabbath to consecrate it. And then the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. doesn't say do not dishonor, but it says honor. And I think that's, that's um, 
literarily has a has a significant effect, and literarily and theologically, it's significant that these are the two commands that are framed positively. Thought about this as thinking about the process that a sculptor goes through, as I as I understand from reading about sculptors, they often have a vision of what's inside the stone. They look at a piece of stone and they see a figure in it, and then they're removing the parts of the stone that don't belong in the figure, and what's left over after they've removed what shouldn't be there is the figure that they that they kind of envisioned in the piece of stone from the beginning. And the 10 words kind of work that way. You have these negative commands that are behaviors and ways of life, ways of living that Israel is not supposed to engage in. They're not supposed to worship other gods, not supposed to use images, not supposed to take the Lord's name lightly, and so on. And once you remove all of those, what's left? What's the positive vision of Israel's life that's left? And uh, I think that within the 10 words, what summarizes the, the positive vision of the life of the people of God is Sabbath and uh, intergenerational respect, and particularly uh, respect uh, for uh, father and mother. Those are the things that are positively being presented as the vision of Israel's life. And I think that fits that, that uh, thing that's kind of implied in the arrangement of the 10 words fits with the fact that uh, the Sabbath is singled out in the, in the Torah as having a peculiar, particular relationship with Israel's life as a summary of Israel's entire covenant life. The Sabbath is a sign between uh, the Lord and Israel. In fact, at one point, the Sabbath is described as itself the covenant. Exodus 31.16 basically identifies Sabbath with the covenant. Um, and it is one of the most repeated commandments that's given in the law. There's uh, Sabbath commands, not only the weekly Sabbath that's commanded a number of times, but there are rules about punishments for breaking the Sabbath. Sabbath patterns get worked into uh, not just weekly cycles of time, but annual cycles of time and larger cycles of time. You have Sabbath years and the Jubilee year. So uh, the Sabbath is organizing Israel's time both on a weekly in a weekly level and uh, on a, a larger in a larger pattern um, and then it's connected with other sorts of uh, you know the manumission of slaves it's a six plus one pattern uh, which is a sabbatical or, uh, order to the way you treat slaves the way you treat the land that's part of time management timekeeping but it's also a way of uh, managing the land and and uh, and protecting the land so that the Sabbath command is repeated a lot, and then it's worked into Israel's way of life in the land. Um, and um, I think for that reason, it's a way of summarizing the entire covenant life of the people of God. You mentioned earlier in Exodus 31 that way in which it's seen as a perpetual covenant, that it stands for the entire covenant. You have the same thing, I think, in Ezekiel 20, where God gives says that God gave the people his Sabbaths in order to show that he has set them apart as holy. And that chapter in 31, it's the very climax of the gift of the law, that it sums up the final thing is the gift of the Sabbath as a perpetual covenant. And in language that's very reminiscent of the gift of circumcision to Abraham, it plays a similar role for Israel as it does for Abraham, circumcision does for Abraham. It's not the first time that they're introduced to the Sabbath. So there is 
Sabbaths are something new that they've not been celebrating before, in part because it's rest from labor. But also there's the way in which they're introduced to the principle of the Sabbath in the gift of the manna. Um, there are six days of gathering, and then the sixth day you have enough to keep you for two days, and then you don't gather on the seventh day, and there's judgment upon those who do. So it is a principle that's already placed within a context of God providing for his people in that context, and then also um, a recognition of God as the one who has given his people that rest that he's going to set apart that time where they do not have to continue their labor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, that the, the connection with manna, that's in Exodus 16, the first time that uh, Israel is commanded to keep Sabbath. The connection with manna uh, highlights the fact that Sabbath keeping is an act of trust in God's provision, as you said. And what's interesting is that even after they, that way of provision, uh, bread from heaven for six days and then one day not, once, even though even when that ends, they go into the land and you have natural provision of food, but they still keep keep Sabbath within uh, a weekly Sabbath within that new setting, at least in part as a reminder that whether the bread shows up uh, miraculously or whether it springs from the ground semi miraculously by so called natural process, it's still a gift of God, and it's still uh, the Sabbath is a recognition of rel uh, that they're relying on God's provision. Even the products of their labors are gifts from God to them. The other thing I think I wanted to highlight from what you said, I don't know if you were heading this direction or would agree with this, but um, the uh, manna scene in Exodus 16 is the first time any human beings are said to keep Sabbath. And it, uh, there's, a, there's a, uh, uh, a pretty strong tradition in, in, the reform, in Reformed reflection on the Sabbath that it's a creation ordinance because God created the world in six days and he himself rested the seventh day, that would have set a pattern for human beings even before Israel's deliverance from Egypt. Possibly, but my, my, my inclination is to say that keeping the Sabbath is a privilege of the redeemed people. And the reason why, as you said, the reason why they are told to keep Sabbath at the time that they are, the reason why it's introduced at that point is because they've been uh, delivered from the house of slavery, from the house of bondage. It's a memorial of that deliverance. It's also in some the there's a kind of elevation. The sa Sabbath on the in the creation week is not just ceasing from the labor of creation, but it's connected with the Lord's enthronement as King over the creation. After He's made His uh, His cosmic house, He uh, takes up His throne as ruler of the cosmic house. Uh, as he does when the tabernacle and temple are made. They're constructed, and then the Lord inhabits the most holy place and is enthroned above the cherubim in Sabbath glory. So um, when we add that dimension, when you add this dimension of elevation and kingship, then uh, what's being communicated, I think, is that Israel is not just, it's not just because they've been delivered from slavery, and now they can rest in the sense of not having to work, but it's part of their elevation as the as the royal priesthood, they're actually entering into the Lord's rest, into his Sabbath enthronement uh, in a way that humanity had not prior. And in addition to that, if you look back in the connections between Genesis 1 and 2 that um, James Jordan has pointed out, you see parallels between God's rest on the Sabbath and then the bringing together of the man and the wife and the rest that they have in each other in that union. And when we see God's gift of rest to his people, there's also a, a marital or nuptial 
dimension to that that the rest that we're looking forward to is the marriage supper of the lamb it's um the presence of god and the bridegroom with the bride and that rest is something that points forward not just a cessation of labors but to an enjoyment of deep union in the spirit yes yeah, so it links with what we said in earlier episodes about the the romantic uh, marital dimensions of the Sabbath, uh, of the Sinai covenant. The Lord is the husband of Israel entering into a marriage covenant with them. And this, um, the, the particular sign that the Lord designates is the, is the uh, keeping of the Sabbath. It's often thought that the Sabbath in the old covenant was a cessation from rest, but not a day of worship particularly. Um, the command is to cease. That's the words, what the word Shabbat means. It means to cease from labor. There's a pun in the Hebrew on Shabbat and the word for seven. So the seventh day is, a, is an appropriate day for the Shabbat, the, for the ceasing. But it's thought that that's, that wasn't a, as some at least think that that wasn't a day of worship in the Old Covenant. Uh, I think there are a couple of indications that that's not the case. That in fact, in the Old Covenant, the Sabbath day was a day of ceasing from labor but also a day on which Israel would be devoted to uh, honoring God. So it's, and Bart makes this point in his discussion of the Sabbath and the church dogmatics that it's uh, the commands to worship God alone are not left in this kind of ethereal realm, but they're worked into in the 10 words, they're worked into the actual pattern of Israel's timekeeping so that they have to interrupt their work in order to acknowledge God as the source of all good. Uh, they're, they're required to interrupt their uh, their daily pattern of labor, but the and and they'd interrupt it not just by stopping work, but also by worshiping. I think that's implied in, by the language of Exodus twenty: commemorate the Sabbath day, the day of ceasing, to keep it holy or to consecrate it. That's uh, goes on to say that the Lord consecrated the day by resting on the Sabbath day. That's in verse eleven of Exodus twenty, which is what Genesis two tells us. Uh, so there's a consecration of the day. This is the Lord's day. It's set apart to the Lord as holy space is the Lord's space. Holy time is the Lord's time. How do you acknowledge holy time as the Lord's time? The implication would be that you acknowledge that day as the Lord's time by worshiping Him on it. So I think it's implied there, but more explicitly stated in Leviticus 23, where you have a schedule of Israel's feasts. And the first one is the Sabbath day. And Israel is supposed to have a holy convocation on the Sabbath day. So um, that's a, that convocation means a gathering. When Israel settled in the land, they didn't all gather at the temple or the tabernacle every week. That would have been impossible. But there were gathering places uh, throughout the land. Uh, there were Levites in the cities. There were Levitical cities. And there were places for people to convene and worship and keep the day holy in that way. So I think that the, the Sabbath was both ceasing from labor and worship in the old covenant uh, and i think that that carries over in some way into the new and your your mention of leviticus 23 and the way that the sabbath provides a pattern and a, a paradigm for the later feasts mm. i think that's important when we see for instance the feast of pentecost which is a counting out of seven sevens and you have the same thing in the year of jubilee which follows a similar sort of principle mm. You mentioned the the manner and how that provides a pattern for thinking about the provision within the land. And I think it's for that reason that they have to present an omer on the Feast of First Fruits, 
that connects with the omer that they gathered each day with the the manna. There is a connection between the provision in the wilderness and then the provision in the land. And then later on, counted from that, the seven sevens and then the the day of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. Those sorts of celebrations seem to expand the basic principle that we see within the Sabbath, which includes elements of economic elements of giving rest to the land, to the people, um, to people who are working for you, taking time to worship and to orient your life towards God. Each one of those aspects seems to have a a stronger expression um, as we see that principle being fleshed out in the other festivals, the other years, other things like that, that expand and develop that principle. Yeah, and you have, you have those sequences of seven, seven sevens in both the uh, Pentecost and Jubilee, but you, and you also have in that same passage in, Le- in Leviticus 20, the seven-day festival of uh, unleavened bread, another seventh-day fe- festival at the end of the calendar with um, the Feast of Booths. So yeah, you've got that. You have that expansion kind of seeps its way into the entirety of Israel's timekeeping, not just not as I said before, not just the weekly cycles. And you, you brought up the the fact that you're giving the land rest, you're also giving people rest, and I think that's an important and somewhat neglected uh, aspect of the Sabbath laws. Um, if the Lord were just interested in telling Israel to cease, could have done that much more succinctly. But it's not just the ceasing of each individual Israelite, but it's the the fact that uh, each uh, Israelite, particularly Israelites who are uh, Israelite, usually men who would be in charge of a household, are required to give rest to those who are under their authority. So uh, Exodus twenty ten, uh, you shall not do any work, but then it expands you, your son, your daughter, your male or female servant, your cattle, your sojourner who stays with you. So everyone under your authority, everyone in your household is also granted rest on that day. And I think that's even more emphatically the, the point of uh, the restatement in Deuteronomy 5, where uh, the, the root of the Sabbath is Exodus. The Lord gave rest to Israel. Therefore, Israel is not just to be a people who take rest, but they're people who give rest. They're supposed to imitate Yahweh by granting relief. And in that way, the, the Sabbath command Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, makes this point in his theology of the liturgy that the, the um, Sabbath becomes the heart of Israel's social legislation. Um, it's the the Sabbath is kind of the paradigm of what um, it's a paradigm. It's a, it's summarizing the covenant and it's summarizing the covenant because it's the way that Israel is supposed to live um, together as a people with rich and poor on the Sabbath day, both ceasing from labor. It's not like the leisure classes can require the working classes to continue to work and to provide for them on the, on the Lord's day. They have to grant the, the slaves rest also. They have to grant their workers rest. Uh, so there's this uh, vision of a kind of leveling, a kind of equality that's embodied in the Sabbath with Israel gathered together as one people before the Lord rejoicing in his gifts. And so the, there's a, the Sabbath gets connected with all the provisions that you have in the, in the law for um, sojourners for strangers for the poor uh, Leviticus 23 right at the heart of Leviticus 23 mainly it's a schedule of the calendar of Israel but right at the heart of it is uh, a reiteration of gleaning laws that, that they aren't to harvest to the corners of their field or to uh, go back and pick up the, the uh, grain that's been dropped 
The Sabbath is, again, in Ratzinger's terms, the Sabbath becomes the, the heart of Israel's social legislation. And as we look through the story of the Exodus, I think you can see the theme of the, of the Sabbath as one that comes to the foreground at key moments. So, for instance, we've already mentioned the connections between Sinai and Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost is that great Sabbath-like event, the seven sevens, this Sabbath of Sabbaths. And then later on, you have the connection of the Jubilee with that same sort of principle. And if you look at the events of Sinai and the blowing of the the horn beforehand, um, it might remind you of something like the defeat of Jericho, where you have a similar principle of sevens being expressed there and the entrance into the land, that the land is being returned to its true owners. The land is um, experiencing its jubilee within that that moment. The year of jubilee begins with the blowing of the trumpet and Jericho, I think, presents that. So you have a people who are at risk, they're delivered from Pharaoh, but they have no land and people without land with are at risk. They don't have a secure ground in their freedom and then God brings them into the land on that sort of jubilee principle that we see in Jericho and so the principle of Sabbath is woven throughout the Exodus narrative and then God wants his people to continue that pattern as things go on and I think we see even within the original creation there is God's pattern of creation and the expectation that human beings will continue that pattern and the rest that God brings his people into is a rest that he wants them to continue to provide for themselves and also for those who work for them. Yeah, the connection of Jubilee and Jericho is an interesting one because it suggests that Israel, is, everybody says Israel is going in to commit genocide. Um, that connection suggests the opposite, that Israel is going in to liberate the land uh, perhaps to liberate many of the Canaanites from oppressive overlords, but it's a declaration of freedom for the land. And it is a jubilee because, uh, as you said, the, the rightful owners are being, the land is being given to the rightful owners, which is the, the whole point of the, of the jubilee uh, legislation. Yeah, that's a, that's a great connection. W- one of the things that comes up in the, the whole discussion of the Sabbath, of course, is Jesus' Sabbath practice, uh, which is controversial in his lifetime. He heals regularly on the Sabbath. He has his disciples, they're eating from the grain field on the Sabbath day, which is to the Pharisees a form of harvest. They're violating the Sabbath day by doing work. Um, It happens so often that it's got to be a deliberate ploy on Jesus' part. He wants to provoke controversy about the Sabbath. Or it's a deliberate ploy by the Pharisees, perhaps in some cases, where they put a a sick person in front of Jesus to test him. Is he going to do something about this? Uh, and I think that those um, uh, those uh, episodes in the Gospels are uh, unfortunately minimized, trivialized in some way, because they, they're often taken as Jesus uh, making exceptions to the Sabbath. You know, uh, an act of mercy on the Sabbath is okay. An act of necessity, if you're really, really, really hungry, then you can harvest on the Sabbath. You can break the law to, to work on the Sabbath. Um, you can, uh, if you're, somebody is, is uh, at death's door, then you can uh, then you can help them uh, on the Sabbath. That's not considered a violation of the Sabbath. But I don't think just as an interpretation of those passages that doesn't work. Jesus and his disciples were not going to starve if they didn't eat the grain in the grain fields. Uh, they could have fasted the rest of the day and and uh, not labored. If in fact that was a violation of the Sabbath, they could have waited. Uh, none of the people that Jesus heals on the Sabbath need to be healed on the Sabbath. Uh, they all can survive till the next day. 
And uh, so Jesus, it doesn't make any sense for Jesus to be, he's not making exceptions or kind of carving out a little zone of activity that you can engage in on the Sabbath. I think what he's doing is revealing the true character of the Sabbath. He's, I think just theologically we have to say Jesus keeps the Sabbath. He doesn't just find uh, loopholes. He actually keeps the Sabbath, and he keeps the Sabbath the way it's supposed to be kept, which is a day for granting relief and a day for granting rest. And when he teaches on it, that's, I think, what he's getting at when he, when he talks about the ox in the well or the ditch. He's not saying, you know, if you, if you have a really, if you got a really, an emergency on the farm, you can break the Sabbath. That's how you give Sabbath to an ox. An ox who's suffering in a ditch is not having rest. And so you grant Sabbath. Animals are supposed to have rest along with human beings. Um, and so you grant Sabbath to the animal. That's a way of keeping Sabbath, not a way of finding a loophole around the Sabbath laws. And that inclusion of animals and the land within that principle of Sabbath is, um, first of all, we have the reference to creation, but it also suggests God's concern for uh, the wider creation, not just his people, not just the stranger within the gates even, but this wider realm of creation that needs to be treated with, um, needs to be treated in a humane and gracious way. Yes, and so it's not just that the Exodus brings Israel into this, they enter into Israel, into the Lord's rest, but it's the land enters into the Lord's rest and Israel's animals enter, enter the Lord, Lord's rest. And it's a sign, obviously not a, not a completion, but it's a sign of the eventual entry of the whole creation into the Lord's Sabbath, into the Lord's completion. But one of the things that intrigues me about that is the, in a sense, the discrepancy between the Lord's Sabbath and Israel's Sabbath. The Lord enters into Sabbath at the creation because he, in fact, has finished. <laughs> He's done his work. And then after the exit, he says, you, Israel, you can participate in my, in my Sabbath. You can keep Sabbath and at least participate in some small way. But their work is not finished. I mean, they begin participating in Sabbath before they ever get to sign, before they ever get to the land. They keep Sabbath even though they've got more work to do in the land. Um, so there's, it's not like they've come to the end of their labors and therefore can cease. They cease in the midst of their labors. Uh, and I think that that contrast, I think, is significant for understanding, again, the, for highlighting the fact that Sabbath is an act of faith. It's not just an act of faith in God's provision, but it's an act of faith in God, God's provision, you could say, of, uh, or God's promise of completion. You cease now anticipating the, the, the time when labor will cease, when God's, God's work through his people will be completed, when the creation will be brought into its full glory. We don't see that yet, but we rest now in anticipation of that eschatological, that eschatological Sabbath. When people talk about the law, often they have tidy categories into which to divide it. So you have the moral law and you have the civil law and you'll have the ritual or the ceremonial law. And Sabbath seems to violate that those distinctions in all sorts of ways. It seems to be part of the moral law. It's part of the Ten Commandments, which we'd usually associate with the moral law. It's certainly part of the ritual or ceremonial law. It provides the basis for Israel's calendar and its feasts. And then, as we've noted, it's part of its civil law. It provides the basis for giving rest to the land, giving rest to workers, and all these economic principles bound into it. And that 
for many approaches to the Old Testament law, confuses and confounds the ways in which we process this and think about how we should relate to it. Mm-hmm. Do we celebrate the Sabbath? Mm-hmm. And if so, how? Yeah, right. That's, uh, um, I think it's important as, uh, as a... Uh, a caution against overly simplistic categorization of the of the Torah, as you say, but I think that that yeah does raise the practical question of uh, how Christians uh, are to uh, keep or not to keep the Sabbath. I think this is I think this is true. Happy to be corrected, but I think it's true that there's a there's a general consensus on a couple of points uh, that seems to cut across much of the Christian Church's tradition on the, on the Sabbath. Uh, one is that the Lord's Day now. Uh, in, in the majority Christian tradition is the day of resurrection Sunday, the day of the new Exodus, as it were. That is a day of worship, that, and that uh, there's a there is a moral obligation to appear in the presence of God and to interrupt our labors at least to the extent that we acknowledge God as the source of all good in the midst of our in the in the regular rhythms of our time. That's not just a a general principle that doesn't touch down on our actual. You know, actual timekeeping and work. It, it intervenes in life. It interrupts, as Bart says. Um, the other thing that does seem to be a, a, a consensus is that, um, at least from the time of Constantine, the church provided a day of rest, uh, and Christians would, you know, there was a, there were days of ceasing. That continues in in some places. It continues to this day, where there's a there's a uh, there is a day of ceasing from labor when basic. I mean, you don't have a modern economy entirely shut down. The the lights continue to be on, and uh, you know, uh, there's a, there's certain things that, that are maintained, but there's a there's a general ce- cessation from productive labor from the from uh, the uh, production and exchange of goods that makes up the modern economy. That, that that's that's uh, from at least from the time of Constantine when Christianity became dominant until the last century, nineteenth uh, century, into the twentieth century. Um, you had that was seemed to be a consensus. How that worked out, what the restrictions were, was everybody as uh, restrictive as uh, is it Eric Little? Am I thinking the right? Yeah. Got the right name, Eric Little. Uh, Sabbath's not a day for playing football, is it? Um, not everybody was that restricted, but I think there was a general consensus that a day of rest is a good thing. Uh, that's spiritually healthy. It's physically healthy. Uh, it's a way of providing. Uh, it's, a, it's an act of mercy to people who are making their living laboring. And so when I've uh, taught and written on this recently, I've kind of sidestepped, tried to sidestep all the detailed casuistry, which I think is worthwhile, but uh, and say that there, there does seem to be this consensus about worship as a requirement and when possible that uh, Christian cultures should organize themselves around this pattern of rest and work. How do you um, think the Sabbath... I mean, when I think of the the principle of the new covenant, we celebrate rest on the first day of the week. How do you think that changes our posture towards work, yeah. that we don't end with rest but begin with it? Well, I think um, it's it's um, in some ways it's a, it's a reversion to uh, the original Adam's original condition because his first day of full life is created on day six. His first day of full life is the day of the Lord's Sabbath. I don't think I don't think he enters into that. But Sabbath is the beginning of his days rather than the end of his days. So the new the new covenant kind of goes back to that. Uh, maybe uh, I'm repeating something I said earlier. I think it again accents the fact that uh, our uh, Sabbath keeping is a, is a 
sign of our trust in God's provision. It gives us a framework or a stance toward our labor. Again, Bart is really good on this. He talks about the, the Sabbath uh, permeating the work life. Somebody who interrupts his work in order to honor God is, uh, he doesn't use the terminology, but it's kind of being habituated to, to uh, honor God in his labor. Uh, uh, somebody who uh, devotes himself to prayer on one day of the week, that prayer is going to be uh, permeating uh, his life. Somebody who uh, ceases from labor and rests in God's provision is going to enter into his labor, not frantically, not with the sense that uh, the success depends on my effort, success depends on me, but trusting in God to provide. To provide. So I think it, it, there's a there's still there's still a rhythm in the sense you you begin your week in rest with the Lord's day, but you're also moving toward it. So you're always between you're always between rest and rest, which is in some ways the the you know the same pattern exists in Israel, even though they counted it as the last day. But I think the switch the switch of the day does put that act of faith kind of front and center as the stance that you're taking toward the work that you're engaging in through the week. And the first Sabbath that we see at the creation is a day of general judgment. God declares his judgment upon his whole creation that is very good. And each Sabbath has a character of the day of the Lord, that anticipation of final judgment in a judgment upon those who appear before God and their world. When we gather before God, it seems to me that there is that expectation that we are coming to be judged mm. in places like first corinthians 11 as the people gather and celebrate the supper together there is the expectation that as they drink the cup it's supposed to be a cup of blessing but if they are partaken in a worthy manner then they bring judgment upon themselves there is this anticipation of the great judgment in attesting of god's people mm. but beginning with that rest and with judgment there is a principle there i think of out of christ's work and his grace we begin with justification we begin with um this relief of our our judgment forgiveness of sins and then on the basis of that we can act and work in a freer way than those who are anticipating a judgment mm -hmm. that we don't know where we'll stand relative to it the work has already been done and now we begin with rest yeah and uh, uh, the other side of the judgment is that um, we are entering into the lord's sabbath we're entering into his royal enthronement and that means that we not only are, are judged, which is true, uh, we appear before God and we are subject to His judgment, but we're also enthroned with Him. Sabbath is enthronement of the Lord, and we enter into it as His children, as His sons, princes and princesses, kings and queens, uh, along with Jesus Christ. And that means that gathering at, for worship is not only subjection to judgment, but it's actually participation also in the Lord's judgments. So that... Um, that uh, that uh, royal dimension uh, is part of our part of, part of the uh, privilege that we have. Again, even more so in the new covenant, Jesus has entered into Sabbath fully. A human being has entered fully into the Lord's Sabbath. We're united to Him, and so we're we are in in anticipation already in that position to, uh, as Paul says, to judge angels and to uh, rule over creation as new Adams and new Eves. And 
celebrating on the first day of the week, which is the day of Christ's resurrection, is fitting in the sense that it's a continuation of the Sabbath principle. It's a continuation of the principle of rest, but it's one that takes account of the new period that we have moved into, that it's no longer characterized primarily by God's rest from the old creation or his bringing of his people out of Egypt into rest. It's characterized by the new exodus and a new creation. And that primary event is the resurrection that we commemorate every single Sunday and then on Easter particularly. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.